what really happened in moving picture shows. Um, and it's something which I realise I've been puzzling about, researching, writing about um, for about 30 years. And I don't feel I know the full story yet. I haven't found the magic diary that would reveal to me what it was actually like to have been at one of those early shows. I don't think anybody has. But gradually, I and many other people have pieced together a sense of what the threshold moment was. We'll come to this in a moment. Uh, I, I imagine many of you feel that you already know what happened, that audiences ran panicking for the exit um, when the Lumiere Brothers' infamous train appeared on the screen. We'll come to that in due course. But before we do that, um, let me remind you, and I have touched on this before, um, that the history of moving pictures on a screen for an audience, for a paying audience, is actually quite long. Um, and I think in, in Britain we have a very good claim uh, to have probably one of the longest histories of any country. Uh, each country has its own national history, as it were. But in Britain we can claim that um, the very first use of the term moving pictures uh, advertised as a show to a paying audience took place in uh, February 1781, when Philip de Lutherberg, who was admittedly French, but he was working here uh, for David Garrick, working in the theatre, launched his Idafusicon. And you can't help but feel that if he'd called it something different, <laughs> it might perhaps have had a longer run. Although, in, in truth, it was um, quite an elaborate show to present. This is the only picture we have, the only contemporary picture. We have the handbills... We have some accounts of what it was like, but this um, uh, picture is, is really all the evidence we have of what was presented to the audiences in Lyle Street, uh, just north of Leicester Square, in 1781. It had a run of six or eight weeks, and it came back a little bit later in a different venue. So we could say this is the first run of moving pictures at the end of the 18th century. Nor should we forget... And again, this is something I've been reminding people of in this series and elsewhere for a long time. We're always in danger of forgetting the persistence and the sheer duration of um, Magic Lantern shows. Um, there's a very, very rich pictorial history which allows us to understand what Magic Lantern shows were like. This is a, a, a relatively early painting, a rather beautiful painting that shows us what a typical Magic Lantern show was like at the beginning of the 19th century, um, end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. Um, it's a big picture. It's bright. And it would have been accompanied, uh, in many cases, by certainly by speech, um, and, and in many cases by um, music as well. And it's, um, it's a history that goes back to the certainly to the 18th century, possibly to the 17th century. There were certainly smallish magic lantern shows, more specialised ones. It runs right through the 18th and the 19th century. And it continues to this day. This is a picture I took recently at the Magic Lantern Society, a meeting of the Magic Lantern Society in London, where a presenter is taking us through a wonderful 19th century set of Baron Munchausen, um, you can see the, the quality and scale of the pictures from, from that slide. Um, there you can see it in all its glory. 
Ah, and the next slide comes up on... It's also worth remembering that Magic Lantern technology and artistry was not just confined to doing stand-up Magic Lantern shows, but was incorporated into theatrical presentations. And this is a rather fine picture of, um, from the later 19th century of the use of projection to produce a ghostly figure on stage. This is called Pepper's Ghost. It was a, a trick that was perfected at the, the Polytechnic on, on Regent Street. It was very popular, used in a number of theatres, and it allowed you to do ghostly dramas where a ghost would rise up, and here you see the, the technique explained, and would interact with characters on stage. So that's a kind of more sophisticated um, adjunct to Magic Lantern presentation. So lanterns are everywhere, projected pictures are everywhere uh, as we approach the end of the century. Does that mean that they, this segues directly into moving pictures on the screen? No. I've mentioned this before, but it's important to be aware that in fact the experience of moving pictures comes in 1894 for audiences on both sides of the Atlantic in many countries through Edison's kinetoscope. This is a rather fanciful promotional image produced by Edison, which has a bust of the man himself at the front, and Edison prominently displayed at the back. The reason I'm showing you this particular image of the kinetoscope is, first of all, we have very, very few photographs of what kinetoscope parlours were like. We have a lot of records from newspapers, from letters. We know that they were well patronised. But what this image is saying is this is a refined form of entertainment, suitable for ladies, suitable for unaccompanied ladies. Now, that may strike you as strange, but in fact, a lot of the publicity and promotion for the kinetoscope in 1894 and 95 stressed very strongly that this was refined and suitable for ladies. Because, why? Well, to enter many of the theatrical uh, establishments where moving pictures would be shown very shortly was not suitable for ladies of a certain class or classes. Um, and the kinetoscope... It was very important to Edison and to the early entrepreneurs of the kinetoscope that they should stress that it was wholesome and above board. This is one of the very few photographs we have of a kinetoscope parlour on the left. Nobody seems to have bothered much to photograph these, well, not very prepossessing places. But the image on the right is, is interesting too because that is a photograph of a phonograph parlour which actually predates the kinetoscope. So just before 1890, between 1880 or so and uh, 1894, quite a number of people set up in business to, well, display, present the phonograph. You went in, you paid your money, you put um, a kind of headphone onto your ear and you could listen to a piece of music or speech. And this gives us a sense of how this new form of entertainment was working. That's the direct precursor of the kinetoscope parlour. Then, at the end of 1895, the beginning of 1896, we reached the, the threshold moment. Um, and again, it's important to stress that this is something which doesn't happen in just one place, and it doesn't happen in America. It's exclusively a European development. 
the device that had been under development for longest was the Lumiere Brothers cinematograph, uh, which you see there in its first English poster. That had been developed in Lyon by the photographic manufacturers, the, the Lumiere Company. Um, they were going to call it the Domitor, but at the last moment they had a change of heart and called it the cinematograph. Otherwise we would be saying that we were going down to the Dom, I suppose, if Domitor had succeeded. Um, this was being demonstrated through 1895. Uh, from March or so onwards, there were demonstrations held at specialist events as the Lumieres got the feel for projecting the films that they were shooting uh, to, to audiences. They didn't go public until the very end, until December um, 1895. The actual first demonstration, public paying demonstration, if we want to be pedantic, was the Stradinovskis. The Stradinovsky brothers are often forgotten, certainly outside of Germany, they are almost totally forgotten. But they had developed what they called um, a bioscope, not an unreasonable name, it was a name that would be widely used for moving pictures uh, afterwards. And they demonstrated it in September um, in Berlin. This is a, a program from November 1895. And their bioscope was actually the first in the field. And in the middle we have Robert Paul, who had been working with kinetoscopes all through 1895, had developed his own camera, was about to develop his projector and would, in fact, demonstrate his projector at very nearly the same time as the Lumieres presented theirs in London in February 1896. Now, um, how much do we know about these early presentations? Well, the answer is not as much as we would like to know, but um, here you've got composite I've made, which this is the actual playbill for the Lumière's first show in the Salon Indien um, beneath uh, a cafe on Boulevard des Capucines. It um, was reconstructed or recreated in a big exhibition last year in Paris, and this is a picture taken in the reconstruction of this salon. The salon was a rather extravagantly decorated room underneath the main cafe, difficult to let apparently, so they struck a deal with the operator of the cafe. Neither of the two brothers, neither Louis or um, Auguste, attended the premiere of their device in Paris. They just weren't interested. It was their father, Antoine, who had pushed them towards moving pictures, who actually presided over the show. And according to his associate, who helped him book the room, not very many people came to the first show, but he said that afterwards he noticed people who had been at the first shows coming back, bringing their friends. And before long, certainly within a matter of days, at the very least weeks, a queue stretched from the, on the pavement outside the entrance to the cafe about three or 400 metres. So this was something which took off by word of mouth. Um, People obviously told their friends, it's something you've got to see. And before long, they were enjoying an enormous success. They, took, they could take, during that initial run, something like 2,500 francs per day, which means that the salon was full and they were doing maybe six, seven, eight shows during the day. It was very lucrative. And that same show, which they 
presented in Paris, actually ran until 1900. Um, it's the, the only example of a lack of evolution. The Lumiere show stuck to the same formula, short 50-second films, which um, were varied, obviously, um, during the course of the run. Now, I want to show you the actual first film that they presented to the public. And this is a slightly odd version of it. What you're going to see is the three versions of this same subject which they made. You might think, if you came across this online, that leaving the factory, sortie d'usine, was something very casually shot outside their, their um, factory in Lyon. Not so. It was obviously choreographed to a certain extent, and they weren't satisfied with the earlier versions. So what you're seeing here is version number three, which is what the public saw, complete with man on bicycle and, of course, the all-important dog. Um, very important dogs in early films. They play quite an important part. There we are. There's the dog. Um, what you now see is version two, slightly different framing. If you go to Lyon today, this um, street has been renamed Street of the First Film, um, and it's a source of immense civic and national pride. There's the dog, different dog, bigger, closer. Children running around, also very important. Dogs come, comes back into frame. Uh, there is actually a Polish film which imagines the shooting of this particular film and the efforts to marshal the crowd. And there we have the very first version. This is the 1895 version. So this is effectively the first film uh, which the Lumieres considered suitable for showing to a public. Not very different from the, the third version, but it, it reminds us that even the, the pioneers had a certain sense, the very beginning of presenting moving pictures, of what would make a satisfactory film. The Lumieres hit on these 50-second continuous strips of celluloid and they stuck to that formula for really the next four or five years. Something rather complicated happens at this point and I've just illustrated it here with a, a sort of montage of stills. One of the people who attends their first show is Georges Méliès, a young magician who's running a nearby theatre in Paris which he's presenting a magic show at. He comes up to the Lumières and says, I want to buy one. They say, no, we're not selling. We're going to keep it to ourselves. We're going to control its exploitation. We're not selling the equipment. It's a secret, in fact, is what uh, Antoine says to him, apparently. Uh, Méliès is infuriated by this, but he's also got a, a ruse up his sleeve. This is Méliès down at the bottom. Um, he heads over to London. He has heard that Robert Paul, at the top, is manufacturing or is about to manufacture um, projectors and is willing to sell. So he arrives in London shortly after Paul has presented his first show on the 20th of February at the Finsbury Technical College. That's the new, newly opened Finsbury Technical College over on the left. On the 28th of February, Paul does a presentation at the Royal Institution in Albemarle Street as well. But it's Hatton Garden, and that's Hatton Garden around 1900, where Méliès heads for, and he buys one of these. 
And that, in fact, is the very machine that Méliès bought from Paul, which is preserved in the Cinémathèque Française. Uh, he tried to file off Robert Paul's name so that he could claim that he'd invented it. There's quite a lot going on in these um, frenzied f- first few months of 1896. This is clearly the, the um, novelty of the moment, and many people conclude that there is money to be made from it, but for how long? Paul is offered a residency, I think it would be called today, at the Alhambra uh, in Leicester Square, which is where the Odeon Leicester Square now stands, one of the grandest music halls in London. And this is a picture of the period which shows us the sheer size of the Alhambra. And that is a 1900 programme, and you'll see there on the left, uh, left-hand column, halfway down, you'll see that Paul... Paul's war pictures from the Anglo-Boer War are actually being presented by uh, 1900. But it's it's on a programme something like that that Paul starts to exhibit in March um, 1896. He projects from behind the curtain here. The projector is back here behind a gauze. The image is being thrown from behind onto a gauze. How do we know that? We know that because a travelling American magician, Carl Hertz, wanted to buy Paul's machine. And he went down to the theatre and he describes in his memoirs exactly it was bolted to the stage. Paul won't sell it because he's only got one. Carl Hertz arrives with a screwdriver at the end of the week and unscrews it, presses either 50 or 100 pounds into Paul's uh, hand and takes the machine and sets off on a world tour. So we have a kind of rather useful snapshot from this memoir of what what projection was like. Um, In April of that year, the management of the theatre suggested to Paul that he should do something a little more entertaining than the films he was showing. And the result was, and this is only a, a... a fragment of the film, I can't show it to you complete yet, they went up onto the roof of the Alhambra and shot a soldier's courtship. This is from the restoration of the film. (laughs) I think we should have that again. What do you think? It's very short. The the whole film is, is considerably longer and has a busybody who comes along and sits on the bench and gets in the way of the courting couple... Eventually, they push her off the bench. Um, these are two quite prominent dancers uh, from the Alhambra Company. They're very well known. Their names are known. So they're, they're performing in costume. The busybody who comes along and interrupts them, which you don't see in that fragment, uh, Ellen Dawn, or Dawes, in fact, would become Robert Paul's wife um, about a year and a half later. So he's getting into theatrical circles That film, Soldier's Courtship, was a huge boost to the programme. And that's really the point at which fiction filmmaking, a proper playlet or play, enters the repertoire. All earlier films had been um, essentially live events or uh, everyday events simply filmed. But The Soldier's Courtship is a a well-formed little narrative. But the other step that Paul took, uh, which the Lumière's 
would not take, essentially, in their programmes, was to um, film topical events. And in June, Paul had the idea of filming the Derby. And this became one of his most celebrated films. That music um, comes from a DVD that I made for the BFI some years ago, and the music is improvised by um, Stephen Horn. I asked Stephen if he could weave a little um, uh, tune based on the song God Bless the Prince of Wales, because we know a lot about this particular event. Paul went to um, Epsom, uh, filmed the end of the race with considerable difficulty. Various gypsy bookmakers apparently tried to pull him out of the way. He got back to London the same afternoon, developed the film overnight, showed it the following day at the Alhambra, and it was a huge success. We know that the band played God Bless the Prince of Wales because the race was actually won by Persimmon, the Prince of Wales' horse. It was encored twice, and the Prince of Wales himself accompanied by some friends, came along to see it at the Alhambra some time later. We don't know exactly when. So this is a, a complete sequence of events from the shooting of the film, which was featured in the Strand magazine, uh, through to its successful presentation. And the film is still being shown um, months, if not years, later. It becomes a permanent fixture in Paul's catalogue. People come to know it as The Prince's Derby. The title is given here in, in the Strand magazine. So um, in terms of our national story of how moving pictures um, enter the entertainment field, you can see the sequence of events from demonstrations at colleges and the Royal Institution, quasi-scientific demonstrations. It gets taken up by music hall uh, entrepreneurs and it becomes a staple in the music halls of, the, of 1896 and 97, which doesn't mean that it's not being shown in lots of other venues as well, in halls of various kinds, uh, in shop fronts that have been converted into uh, screening places. But that essentially comes later. The very first phase of exhibition happens mainly in music halls, to some extent in fairgrounds. So... What can we say, then, about the famous story about the audiences who were panic-stricken by um, the approaching train? Well, let's look at the train. This is the film in question. This is part of the Lumiere's first batch. It wasn't actually in their first programme, um, but it very quickly entered the programme. It's called The Arrival of a Train at La Ciota, which is the local station near where their factory was in Lyon.
And this is what Maxim Gorky, a young journalist and writer, making a name for himself in Russia in 1895 and 96. He visits the Nizhny Novgorod Fair in 96. He sees a program which includes this particular film, and he writes um, a famous newspaper article called The Kingdom of the Shadows. And it includes these lines. Suddenly something clicks, everything vanishes, a train appears on the screen. It speeds straight at you. Look out. It seems as though it'll plunge into the darkness in which you sit, turning you into a ripped sack of lacerated flesh and splintered bones. Really? Is this the same film? Does this seem a plausible account of how audiences of 1896 might respond to this rather genteel scene of a train coming into a country station? There's no sense of the locomotive heading straight towards the audience. It clearly passes the audience, pulls up as a train would, and the audience, the, uh, the uh, passengers, the intending passengers, come forward. It's a scene that would actually be filmed, refilmed many, many times. Many of the early um, pioneers would film this scene. It's a very clever film. The Lumieres knew a great deal about photography, and they were very clever in using the diagonal so that the film has an almost stereoscopic sense of depth to it. And that was a very important feature of the way they composed their early films. So it's skillful film that conveys a sense of motion and depth, but does it really make the audience feel um, worried for their safety? Well, various film scholars have described this as the um, cinema's founding myth, as Martin Leuperdinger calls it, um, the belief that audiences rushed screaming for the exit. And if most histories of early cinema do contain some statement to the effect that audiences were terrified. Sometimes this is hammed up to the point that people ran screaming from the auditorium. Sometimes they just shudder and shiver. What's the evidence of it? Is there any evidence whatsoever? In 1913, another Russian writer wrote, it was one of the most powerful experiences of my life when the train came rushing towards me from the screen, when three or four hundred people spilled out of the station platform. Really? I began to scream, and everyone else was screaming too. So from 1913, at least, people were writing this kind of thing as if it was a memory of something that had happened to them, and they're describing a, a completely unimaginable scene of panic in the auditorium. The auditorium weren't that big anyway at this, at this point in early 1896. So it's become such a familiar story that some embellishment is needed uh, for another telling to have any impact, and what you've just heard is, a, is an embellished version of it. There is, however, as another early cinema scholar has pointed out, there is some contemporary evidence, even earlier than Gorky's account. A British paper, The Sketch, uh, published in March 1896, which is only a month after the first public screening started in London, the following. In the distance, there is some smoke when the engine of the express is seen. And in a few seconds, the train rushes in so quickly that, in common with most of the people in the front row of the stalls, I shift uneasily in my seat and think of railway accidents. Now, that's very interesting. 
That's much more useful than Gorky's uh, and the other accounts. I shift uneasily in my seat and I think of railway accidents. Why should that be significant? Well, it's significant because railway accidents were a pretty common feature of 19th century life. And um, some of you probably know, for instance, the, the story which um, Claire Tomlin told of Dickens and his paramour being um, found out because they were involved in a train crash. Train crashes were not uncommon in the mid-19th century, and they continued more or less through to the end of the century. So the idea that watching a moving train on screen might um, make an audience member think about railway accidents is not altogether unreasonable. It's quite a different matter from thinking the train is coming towards you. But perhaps more significant is this scene, which took place in mid-1895. And this would have been very fresh in the minds of quite a number of viewers because it was photographed. It's um, a train crashed through the wall of the Gare Montparnasse in Paris and was photographed in this extraordinary fashion. That photograph was widely reproduced around the world. It seems to me very likely or very possible that that was the, the visual trigger that a moving train um, evoked in some of the early spectators. What you see on the left, this image on the left, is in fact a recreation of the supposed panic-stricken reaction, which comes from Martin Scorsese's film Hugo, which uses this founding myth um, for its own purposes. But it's a fictional film, of course. So, is that all there is to be said, that it's an exaggeration, that it's a story that people like telling? No, I think there's something else we can say about it too. It had become part and parcel of the, the mythology of the first experience of pictures. So somehow the story that audiences were panic-stricken or alarmed had been woven into, do you remember the first moving pictures you saw? And some of the evidence for that comes from another Robert Paul film. By 1901, he makes a film. This only exists as a fragment, so I can only show you a part of it, but fortunately it's the right fragment. Which I hope will play. So this little film is a, a very clever piece of, um, let's just uh, st stop it there. Um, it's a clever film because it's using what we would call today a matted inserted shot. So there's a, a framing image of the actor performing in front of a screen and then a, a matted image uh, has been dropped in to um, stand for the moving pictures on the screen. Um, but look at the title, The Countryman's First Sight of Animated Pictures. This is a country uh, bumpkin who doesn't understand that moving pictures are not real. 
And in the full film, we know this from the catalogue description, what actually happens is he eventually goes up to the sheet and peers behind it to see what's happening. Does this mean that people really went and peered behind the screen? No, I don't think it does. I think what it refers to is the idea that a certain sophistication is needed to understand moving pictures, to understand the, um, the origins and the nature of the image that's being shown on the screen. This is a film, Paul's film, which is intended to make a relatively sophisticated audience of 1901 laugh amongst themselves and possibly reminisce about their first experience of moving pictures. It's setting a distance between an unsophisticated reaction, which may not have been anyone's reaction, and the degree of sophistication that's become quite normal by 1900, 1901. And in fact, this film is pirated, remade by Edison. There's a lot of piracy. You know, That's a good idea. I could do that. Edison makes a version of the same uh, story, the same device, uh, which he calls Uncle Josh at the Moving Pictures. So it's trope that gets repeated. And I think there's a French version of it as well. Uh, this idea that early, early uh, audiences were uncertain of the reality status of what they were seeing. It's not in any sense, I think, a report of what really happened, but it's a story that's worth telling and retelling as a comedy. But I think there are other reactions that are, are in some ways more interesting and more worth exploring. And um, they don't turn on sensation. They don't turn on the audience feeling terrified by uh, vehicles rushing towards them. They actually turn on something quite different, which may not be very obvious to us today. The experience of seeing something liquid, mobile or numinous one of the, uh, these are two films from the early Lumiere repertoire. The one on the left shows blacksmiths at work. So in it, one of the blacksmiths on the, the right, or the left rather, is beating out a, a bar of metal, uh, which has been heated in the furnace on the, on the other side. He plunges it into the tub, and I think you can just about see, I've taken a, a frame still, a little bit of steam rising. You can see smoke rising from the furnace over on the right. That struck a number of viewers as being something remarkable, which they'd never seen before. Even a sophisticated magic lantern show with moving slides couldn't produce the appearance of vapour or steam or smoke. The sea is another very good case in point. The movement of the sea absolutely mesmerised early audiences. Georges Sadou, great French film historian who wrote the first comprehensive history of cinema, um, he describes how his mother, who was born in the middle of France, had never seen the sea, saw it first on screen when she saw an early Lumiere show, and when she finally did get to the seaside in later life, she said, oh, it's just like I saw in the moving pictures. So it's, it's a very interesting example of someone comparing something which they'd first seen on screen with the real thing. And that seems to me entirely believable and plausible. Audiences were beginning to see things through these early uh, programmes of actualities, which they'd never witnessed. And from this point onwards, there would be a, an interesting relationship between, I saw it at the movies, oh, there it is for real. Um, if we pursue that for a moment, um, these are two films from Robert Paul's catalogue, 
This is from the very early kinetoscope period. He and Bert Akers made a, a, a very early film of sea breaking at Dover on the um, breakwater. sure you can guess why I asked Stephen to play that. <laughs> For those in peril on the deep. All that we know about accompaniment practices for early cinema suggests that it was very much triggered by associations. So popular tunes, God Bless the Prince of Wales, or anything with a sea motif would probably have been used to accompany a film like that. That's a film that was shot for the kinetoscope. Very short, very simple, very successful. During, the, during 1895, picked up by Thomas Edison, who incorporated it into his first projected show uh, in, in uh, April um, 1896 on Broadway. And this was the film, the film you've just seen, that more people commented on after that show. It was Edison's own films were not as well received as this example of um, a British sea subject. Um, and here is... One of Paul's later, later that year, September, from a series of films that he commissioned. Again, that's only a, a fragment of the film that survived. It's called, known as a sea cave near Lisbon. And... Um, Paul obviously thought it was very fine. He um, wrote it up in his catalogue. It's about, let's say, twice as long as the little piece you've seen. And he copyrighted it. This is one of the very first films uh, that the filmmaker felt was good enough to be worth copywriting. It was shot for him by Henry Short. He asked Henry Short to assign the copyright to him. And it stayed in his catalogue for many years. So here we've got an example of an artistic film it was felt to have real artistic merit, but the sea is the subject, the waves rushing in, as it says in the catalogue. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to end this um, talk by showing you a much longer segment of um, uh, from a series that I wrote and co-produced back in 1995 uh, for the centenary of cinema, so-called. Um, we managed uh, to persuade the BBC that they should mark the centenary of cinema. And the result was a series um, called The Last Machine, uh, made by the British Film Institute, where I was working at the time, and presented on Saturday evenings at 8 o'clock. Seems extraordinary, doesn't it? Can you imagine television today dealing with early cinema at 8 o'clock on a Saturday evening? I couldn't believe my eyes. They even showed a little piece of early pornography that we found in programme three. Uh, you can find most of The Last Machine actually online. Uh, it's, it's on YouTube now. But what I'm going to do is, is show you um, a little segment of programme four, which is called Tales from the City. What we tried to do in this particular uh, programme was to bring together all the research that had been done up to this point on what was early audience behaviour like 
So the, the kind of question that I've been um, dealing with this evening was really um, in our focus back in 1894, when we, uh, sorry, 1994, when we were making this. Um, it was shot on a silent stage at Pinewood with a very, very uh, wonderful group of collaborators. Richard Curzon-Smith directed it. Terry Gilliam um, agreed to present it. So it's his voice that you hear, and little f fragments of him appear in the course of it. And we had a wonderful uh, group of actors, um, some well-known, some not so well-known, some better known now than they were then. What you'll see Fiona Shaw in this particular segment, you'll, I'm also happy to say that one of the other actors uh, is, is here, sitting down there, um, who, who is one of the contributors to um, this attempt to recreate the experience of being an audience around about the turn of the century. Let's, let's see if we can... I'm going to dive into this. This is a trip back to the beginning of our century, to the moment when history was first caught by the moving pictures. It's the story of early filmmaking and of the first movies and their audiences. But it's also about the figures in the shadows, writers, artists and visionaries of all kinds who looked forward to the age of cinema and to the modern world that came with it. Part of a crowd appealed to a new generation of city folk with time on their hands. One of these was the Russian poet Alexander Bloch, who wrote to a friend about the strange attraction of the cinema. It's no joke. These places ambush you, like something in a city literary story. The only thing to do is to trick yourself into slipping past them. I set off for your place yesterday, and then I saw that cinema on the Litania. And I went in and watched the pictures for about an hour. And here I am again. For the first 10 years, cinema programs were an incoherent jumble. It was often hard to tell where one film ended and another began. Unlike theaters or concerts, it was possible to come and go at will. Before moving picture shows, most audiences had no experience of sitting in the dark. Ordinary theaters kept their lights on.
picture houses started as dingy and disreputable places, and the folklore of cinema going soon sprang up. The audience was unruly, as if the communal gloom had unlocked their inhibitions. Picture houses were popular with prostitutes, either trying to stay warm or touting for custom. <laughs> Maxime Gorky wrote a story in 1896 based on a real case of a prostitute who committed suicide. He imagined her despair after seeing an image of normal family life in the Lumiere film Baby's Breakfast. And 15 years later, life imitated art in the Russian town of Pskov, when a man tried to shoot himself at the same moment as a character on screen committed suicide. an evening out, do you call this, eh? It's disgusting. It's like a pigsty. A Russian pigsty. I've just come back from Paris where the Salle de Cinema are elegant. They attract the creme of society. I'm going to make some changes around here. Starting with the people who go to the cinema shows. I want this lot out. Now. And then I, I'm going to clean this place up and I'm going to decorate it just like in Paris. We'll have usherettes to show people to their seats. And a foyer for people to meet their friends. And oh, I'll have a little salon orchestra just there. It will be wonderful. It will be just like Paris. And when Madame Vasilyeva, who was the daughter of a Siberian gold merchant, did finally open two luxury cinemas in St. Petersburg, she called them just like Paris and just like Nice. And it wasn't only happening in Russia. A new kind of cinema started to appear everywhere around 1908. So that, I suppose, that tries to summarise the state of knowledge that we had about audiences, audience behaviour uh, in, the, in the early 90s. Quite a lot more work has been done since then, of course. There's been a generation of um, younger scholars who built on the work of older folk. Um, here are some sources. Uh, if you're interested in pursuing this further, Charles Musso's book, Before the Nickelodeon, I think was one of the absolutely foundational books that really took us into the world of early pictures. And all the material about Edison, about Edwin Porter, really comes from Charlie's work in that, that great pioneering book. Yuri Tsivian also did very important pioneering work on Russian cinema. And his book, um, Early Cinema in Russia and its Cultural Reception, 
was an absolute goldmine when we were making this series because what Yuri had done was to comb the letters, the um, journals, the periodicals of Russia in the first 15, 20 years of the century for evidence. And many of those little incidents that you see there, the man who tried to shoot himself, Gorky's story, all of those things come from Yuri Tsivian's work. As I say, people have built on that since, and you can find a lot more information about early audience behavior in the dark for the first time. Uh, I'm hoping to, to uh, spread a lot of this new scholarship and new work in uh, the course of next year. I've got a book coming out on Robert Paul and the world in which he emerged. I've got a blog which is running at the moment, which uh, you may find it of interest. But um, that's all I've got to show you. So um, I'll finish there. And if anybody has any questions, we haven't had any time for any questions before, uh, then we, I think we've got time to fit a few in. Thank you. Thank you.